0: Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. This podcast, hosted by Kate Agnew and Marie Ferguson, will empower you to realize your professional dreams by giving you access to our global community of dietitians. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we'll educate you, inspire you, and help you create more impact as a dietitian.
1: to another Dietitian Connection podcast. My name is Marie Ferguson and I'm the founder and director of Dietitian Connection. Uh, Today we're going to be talking all things exclusive enteral nutrition in adults with Crohn's disease. And it's my pleasure today to introduce Liz Purcell. Uh, Liz is an advanced accredited practicing dietitian with more than 20 years experience. Throughout her career, Liz has developed extensive clinical expertise in a range of practice domains and across the continuum of care but harbours a particular interest and has advanced clinical knowledge in gastroenterology, specifically in inflammatory bowel disease and the intensive care nutrition. Over the past few years, Liz has represented her profession nationally and internationally, contributing towards the development of national guidelines, Australian standards and action plans, while committing to her primary role as advanced gastroenterology and ICU team leader within Metro South Health in Queensland, Australia. And Liz is currently undertaking research in the area of exclusive enteral nutrition in the management of adults with Crohn's disease. Today, the podcast will cover an overview of Crohn's disease and its prevalence in Australia, uh, some of the key nutritional deficiencies people with Crohn's disease experience, what is exclusive enteral nutrition or EEN and why Liz is such an advocate, the barriers to using EEN and how dietitians can improve adherence and where dietitians can learn more about Crohn's disease and EEN. And I would like to acknowledge and thank Abbott for supporting today's podcast. So welcome and thanks so much for joining me today, Liz. Thank you, Marie. I'm delighted to be here. So our first question is, what is inflammatory bowel disease or IBD and how prevalent is it in Australia?
2: OK, sure. So um, inflammatory bowel disease is a chronic inflammatory disease of the gastrointestinal tract, which encompasses essentially Crohn's disease and colitis. Um, at the moment, it currently affects more than 80,000 Australians, 60% of whom are under the age of 40. Um, And it has a very, very significant healthcare cost in the region of about $3 billion a year. So impacts hugely Mm -hmm. on the health service. Crohn's colitis Australia projects an increase in incidence of about 20-25% in the next two years. So very, very significant. Um, IBD typically um, affects. Um, people in the early 20s albeit the peak prevalence in australia is between 30 and 39 years of age in otherwise um, healthy and active people unfortunately it is a lifelong condition there is no cure for crohn's disease um, and it generally manifests itself um, in symptoms such as abdominal pain diarrhea bloody stools anemia with subsequent fatigue and weight loss um, and as you'd expect, These would be hugely variable, ranging from mild abdominal pain in some people to bowels opening um, upwards of 20 to 30 times a day. So a very significant and often devastating impact on a person's quality of life.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, You know, at such a young age and with all of those negative symptoms. Yeah, absolutely. What are the causes or the pathogenesis of IBD?
2: The pathogenesis of IBD is particularly complex, um, and the cause remains unknown, although considerable progress has been made in recent years to try and unravel it. Um, Essentially, the main things that are coming out are a combination of genetic, environmental and immunological aspects or factors. We know that genetics plays a very, very significant role and to date more than 200 genes have been identified which are associated with the onset of IBD. Um, It's estimated that about 5 to 15% of patients with IBD have a family history and if you yourself have IBD you have a 50% chance of having a child with IBD. Certainly, environment plays a huge role, and obviously, as a dietitian, I'm a big believer that nutrition has a has a significant impact. Um, there is an evident link between change in food habits and food production and the incidence of IBD. Um, and certainly, from my experience, you can see that patients themselves attribute diet to worsening their symptoms. There is an awful lot of research at the moment going on looking at specific food components most notably at the moment things like emulsifying agents which is Mm. a component that keeps fat in suspension Mm. in food so i often use the example to my patients of something like mayonnaise if mayonnaise wasn't heavily emulsified it would visibly look very unappetizing Mm. because it would be separated Mm. and we think that approximately 30 percent of the food in our supermarkets to date are of emulsifying agents so there's a lot of evidence going into our research going into looking at that but certainly fast food consumption has been linked with a higher increase of Crohn's disease and um, generally the the western diet is associated with worsening symptoms etc
1: i imagine you see a lot of patients or clients that then are excluding certain foods
2: Absolutely, we do, yeah. Yeah. And certainly, Marie, where I work, it is um, quite a low socioeconomic um, demographic. So we see the incidence there particularly high. Um, I believe the incidence in the area that I work in is the highest in Queensland. Um, But yeah, for that reason. And I was saying ultimately at the beginning that um, it has or can have a very debilitating effect on and people's life and you can imagine being diagnosed at such a young age people will significantly self-restrict because of a fear of eating associating that with more frequent trips to the toilet or just trying to maintain either a social life or hold down a new job or a relationship or whatever it's very very debilitating.
1: Yeah I know we'll talk more about that um, I think IBS and IBD are often confused though what do you find and what's the main difference?
2: Absolutely, they are. Yes. So I think the the main thing to remember is that um, IBS is, um, I usually say that um, all of us experience IBS to some degree at some point in our life. So IBS is irritable bowel syndrome and generally manifests itself as discomfort, bloating, extra wind, all of that. It's not a serious condition, albeit it can affect people's day to day comfort, whereas IBD, inflammatory bowel disease, is a very, very chronic, very severe condition that can ultimately end in the, or result in the patient requiring very, very strong medication or ultimately surgery at the end of the day. Um, one of the things that um, I did want to talk about, Marie, is the um, incidence of micronutrient deficiency in IBD. And we know that, unfortunately, malnutrition is rife in this cohort of patients, which is not something you see in IBS. So I'm very, very wary about um, putting patients with inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's or ulcerative colitis on very restrictive diets that might ultimately compromise an already compromised immune or nutritional um, component of their disease. Mm
1: -hmm. And what's the difference between Crohn's and ulcerative colitis?
2: Um, And Crohn's disease is probably the more severe of the two diseases. Crohn's disease can affect any place from the mouth all the way down to the anus. It tends to be patchy in nature, whereas ulcerative colitis only affects the the large bowel or the colon and the rectum. Um, If ulcerative colitis is severe enough, um, an extreme procedure would be to remove the entire colon or have um, a colectomy in which the patient ends up forming like a J-pouch procedure. Um, That in in itself is not without complications, but ultimately that can significantly help. Whereas with Crohn's disease, if it's severe enough, they they end up going back to have various sections of their bowel removed. Both diseases are characterized by periods of remission, where the patient may not have any symptoms whatsoever and may be able to live a relatively normal existence. To the extreme cases, where they're in um, a flare or have active inflammation, and again, as I as I alluded to earlier, that can be extremely variable from patient to patient, from you know abdominal discomfort, pain, a little bit of bloody diarrhea to Severe anemia, which can cause extreme exhaustion, um, bowels opening upwards of 20 to 30 times a day, mm. severe abdominal pain, very, very debilitating. I think ultimately that's why I became so interested in it as a, as a junior dietitian going back 100 years ago, mm. um, because I was suddenly seeing patients my age or younger. And I remember, you know, reflecting and thinking, how would I cope with okay. this? And is there anything that I could possibly do to help?
1: Yeah, Yeah. I can Mm. can see that and yeah, how you can make a positive difference. Um, So talking about patients with Crohn's disease specifically, what are the key nutritional issues that they commonly experience? And you've touched on some of those.
2: Yes. um, Well, as I mentioned, unfortunately, um, malnutrition is at an unacceptably high level in IBD across the board, but but more so in Crohn's disease than ulcerative colitis. And this directly affects the course and the outcome of the disease. Um, we know from the literature that it's estimated that about 23% of patients with IBD who are regularly followed up in outpatient clinics. And as much as 85% of hospitalised patients will have nutrition deficiencies to some degree. Um, And as you would expect, the prevalence of that is greater in active disease than in remission, and it is greater in Crohn's disease than in ulcerative colitis. Um, some of the um, key nutrient deficiencies that are seen, and they are seen in more than 50% of patients with IBD, um, include things like iron predominantly. So, anemia is very, very rife in this group. B12 deficiency, vitamin D and K, and some minerals like selenium and zinc. And we also know from the clinical perspective that malnutrition is the third most common clinical feature to present itself after diarrhea and abdominal pain. So, you know, very, very significant, yeah. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. And then for patients that have active Crohn's disease, are there any nutritional therapies to aid remission?
2: Well, the one that I'm predominantly interested in is the use of of EEN or exclusive enteral nutrition. Essentially, just before I go on to that, um, one of the things that I always spend a bit of time talking to my patients about is because, you know, patients will clutch at straws and often revert to Dr. Google for advice. And there's an awful lot of, you know, inappropriate advice out there. So I would always strongly advocate for, patients or, um, or families to always seek professional advice. Generally speaking, in a person who's well, who so if they're in remission with their Crohn's or UC, there is really no special diet. We would advocate for kind of fresh, wholesome foods, including fibre. The only time that I ever restrict fibre in this group is in stricturing disease, or where there's a narrowing in the bowel that might... Um, fibre might exacerbate, but otherwise you're looking at following the Australian healthy eating guidelines in these patients. However, when they're unwell, obviously you would adapt and manipulate that. But one of the things that I'm particularly interested in and what my research is about at the moment is the use of exclusive enteral nutrition. So EEN is a very, very well established, well-researched, very safe first line of treatment in babies or children with Crohn's disease and it- It has approximately an 80-85% success rate in this group. We know that its efficacy is the same in adults. Um, The problem is that we can't, unfortunately, get adults to adhere to it. I think the older and the more exposed you are to all the deliciousness that's out there, (laughs) the harder it is to stick to it. So essentially, EEN is the provision of 100% of your nutritional requirements coming from a nutritionally complete fluid or formula and so you would have that for approximately six to eight weeks exclusively Um, and that's at the exclusion of all other food and drink with the exception of water and that would be the strictest form of it. Um, One of the things that I feel very passionately about is as you can imagine like like many treatment options available to this group, EEN, is confronting and it's daunting and it does elicit, you know, anxiety. So I feel very strongly that it's our role as the dietitian to sit down with a patient and, wherever possible, um, try and alleviate those concerns. Um, the big of course, advantage to EEN over any of the other treatment options. And the main treatment options are things like steroids is your first line, followed by immunological drugs, followed by biologics. So very, very um, serious, very, very um, risky drugs, particularly steroids. While they're very fast acting and can treat the disease quickly, they come at a very big cost to the patient as regards the side effects like um osteoporosis you know mood swings um obesity you know lots and lots of different things and um i hear time and time again from patients that if they knew now what they knew or if they knew then what they know now they would never opt for steroids. So it's really just having a long chat with the patient about the pros and cons, and absolutely acknowledging that EEN is tough. One of the the main principles that I offer um, in my research and what I'm looking at is if intensive dietetic support actually encourages the patient to adhere um, and certainly my my um, research is unpublished yet, so I don't, want to, <laughs> I don't want to give too much away. But I was lucky enough to go to um, Vienna last February, just before COVID hit, and present at the European Crohn's Colitis um, Congress. And I was able to present my interim data. And um, we managed to get 86% of patients to adhere to six weeks on mm. EU. Wow. Yeah, with quite significant results. Um, obviously the limitations were our numbers and we can't absolutely say that that was purely because of the EEN. Some of the patients did have, um, other treatment options, but, um, at the end of each course, each patient was asked three questions and that included things like their biggest barrier. Would they do it again if required? Um, and how they rated the support. And they were all extremely positive. As you can imagine, the biggest barrier is the temptation of, you know, socializing particularly. Um, And at risk of um, appearing remotely sexist, I would never, I would never do that, Marie. But Mm. I do believe that, you know, it is that bit harder if you're the I suppose the female in the family and you're doing the majority of the cooking or preparing the children's lunches or meals, mm. that is very, very tough. So another thing that I advocate for is that, um, you know, you bring your spouse or partner or family member with you so they have a good understanding of the support that's required. And um, yeah, just so that they don't mm. even unintentionally sabotage the efforts, I suppose. Um Yeah, definitely it seems that um being male is a is a predictor for success. (laughs) And I think if you're somebody that Instagrams your breakfast, that's probably a um a predictor for failure (laughs) with the end. But um but yeah, so we in with my study I offered um a minimum of once a week face to face and that could be generally via telehealth because of COVID or over the phone. And then they had open access to me throughout as well. Mm-hmm. And as, as you can imagine, some patients utilised that, some patients didn't require it. But mm-hmm. the, the feedback regarding the support was, was fantastic, which was great.
1: And how does it exactly work, Liz? Like what's the rationale behind it? How does it?
2: <laughs> that's, that's a very good question. So the exact mechanism mechanism of action does remain unclear. However, um, its ability to reduce inflammation and heal the gut mucosa, which is the innermost layer of the gastrointestinal tract by altering the gut flora or gut bacteria, um, coupled with um, EEN's ability to improve the nutritional state or status, have consistently been identified as potential factors. Um, The other big thing um, is that EEN has been shown in studies to significantly improve a patient's quality of life, Um, whereas that's not really um, apparent with a lot of the medications that are used because of the side effects. Mm. Certainly, um, some of the things that are implicated are um, improving mucosal permeability and decreasing the antigenic effect of regular food, so the, the irritant effect, um, altering the gut flora is a, a very significant one um, and reducing the kind of pro-inflammatory cytokines or, the, or the, the things that circulate the blood that will cause or exacerbate inflammation.
1: Mm-hmm. And can patients, do they have to stay on it for that certain period of time or if they start to feel better and their symptoms subside, can they stop or is it really you've got to do it for that particular time period?
2: Yeah, at the moment, Marie, there is no kind of, um, no studies out there looking specifically at length of time. So the six to eight weeks is based on, um, kind of expert consensus statement or agreement. It does very much depend on the ultimate goal. So um, EEN can be used very, very effectively pre-surgery as well to ensure that the patient is in a good nutritional state going to surgery. And for example, with something like that, the recommendation is about four weeks. But certainly for EEN used to induce remission or with um, a name to get a patient off steroids, you're looking at six to eight weeks, yes. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, though, we know from the studies that you see a significant reduction in inflammatory markers, both in the blood, so the C-reactive protein, protein, ESR, they have shown to come down within about two weeks, but further reduce the longer you're on it. Similarly, calprotectin, which is a a measure of, it's a very sensitive, albeit not specific, um, measure of inflammation that we see in stool samples. Mm. And that tells us, um, you know, how aggressive I suppose the inflammation is. Um, but yes, six weeks, ideally. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And when choosing a formula for E, and then what should be considered in that process?
2: There are lots of things to consider, really, Um, and that's, again, something that I'm a big advocate for, um, you know, discussing all the options with the patient so that they can make the informed decision um, and that they are given choice, but certainly things like um, the type of formula. So you have um, very broadly, you have polymeric feeds, which are whole protein feeds, and you have elemental feeds, which are pre-digested feeds, which never really appeal to any patient, Now, um, a lot of the studies in more recent years, and and I mean in the the last kind of 10 to 15 years, have shown no um, difference between the two. But we know that polymeric or whole protein feeds are much, much better tolerated. And that's mainly because elemental has a very distinctive smell and a bitter taste secondary to the amino acid formula. So it's not very well tolerated. Um, and bitterness, bitterness, is negatively correlated with palatability, whereas um, sweetness and sourness is is positively correlated um but also things like whether you want to go for a fiber containing feed or fiber free feed and as i mentioned earlier um, unless there is stricturing disease or obstructive disease present i would encourage some degree of fiber um, volume is a big issue um, because obviously they're they're having these drinks and a lot of um i see this predominantly in men they kind of see the the little 200 mil tetra packs and think, well, that's not going to touch the side, I'm going to be starving. But when they actually taste them, they are very rich, they are very filling, and people will actually struggle to manage six, seven or eight, however many they need a day. That said, going for more concentrated feeds isn't often the, the solution because the more concentrated the feed, the more hyperosmolar the feed, which can result in worsening diarrhea. So sometimes there is a little bit of um, trial and error involved, but I will always give a patient in the first consultation, I would give them a variety of samples to take away and try. And I guess the other thing, Marie, especially in um, the demographics that I work in is cost. We do have to consider the cost implications. Now, where I work, um, it is heavily subsidized by the hospital because it is a treatment for the condition. Um, But in some places around the country, there is no subsidy. So generally speaking, you're looking at over $300 a month. Um, In my particular um, hospital, it it costs about just under $150 a month, Um, which for some that can be a big ask, bearing in mind though, that they won't have a personal food bill during that time. So if you break it down week for week, it's not that expensive but it is absolutely a consideration Mm. um yeah
1: and then after that treatment period I guess if we call it a treatment period there's obviously needs to be a food reintroduction stage how does that work
2: um so again there's no kind of hard and fast rules um about this um i've been doing this as you said at the beginning for over 20 years so when i first started out in this we used to follow something called the low flex diet which essentially is low fat low fiber and gradually progress people on but we've kind of moved on from restrictive diets and the recommendation and, and one of the things that i wanted to Flag today was I was lucky enough to be um, a dietitian um, involved in an OSPEN EEN toolkit that we put together. So there was nine dietitians across the country and three gastroenterologists that worked on this. Um, And that's um, a a toolkit or a resource available for clinicians on the OSPIN website um, that want to know more about it. But essentially, you would want to progress a patient back to a normal diet within about five days. Personally, I usually start by reducing their EEN back to about 50% of their Requirements and introducing two to three kind of snack type meals a day, rather than going straight onto a big meal, because that can obviously have an impact on you know their volume and their tolerance for food, having not had any solid food for the last six weeks. Um, but ultimately, we're looking at getting them back to an unrestricted, nutritionally balanced diet tailored to the patient's preference. And um, you know, as recommended and and that's where I suppose the dietitian skill comes into play. We can tailor the diet to meet their specific needs, cultural beliefs, any kind of restrictions that they do follow that we can work with, but obviously advise them. So um, a good example of that is if they were following a vegetarian or a vegan diet, for example, making sure that the diet is adequate when they transition back. Generally speaking, where possible, um, I do encourage that the patient does stay on what we call PEN, which is partial nutrition, indefinitely, really, if I can. Um, And most patients feel so good on EEN that they're willing to continue with one or two of the drinks a day, in addition to kind of three meals a day as well. So that's generally how I would do it, um, yeah. Mm.
1: And you talked about some of the barriers to your patients using EEN. Was there anything else you wanted to cover there?
2: No, as I said, um, I think in my experience it is breaking down the kind of fear and anxiety associated with it. I think the support aspect is, is huge and sometimes I'm I'm very lucky in um, Metro South that I work with um, fantastic gastroenterologists who are very very pro nutrition and pro um, the use of EEN and certainly consensus statements um, and and guidelines, particularly coming from Europe, really advocate the use of. EEN so that all helps helps the cause there are other diets coming out now a lot of new literature from Egypt or Israel sorry looking at Crohn's disease exclusion diet which um, again is looking at an alternative option to EEN but at the moment I'd probably still be an advocate for EEN but essentially it's getting the doctors on board getting them to help you advocate Um, and encouraging the patient along their way as as well. Um, Getting family to support, offering support and open access to them and providing um, lots of resources, providing them with um, various samples and options so that they can tell you what flavors they like, what products they like, all of that kind of Mm -hmm. thing.
1: Any other tips on how to improve adherence?
2: um i guess there there are lots of little tips and tricks that as dieticians we we give so you know one of the big um things that i probably should have mentioned earlier is taste fatigue so you can imagine if you're having this kind of liquid every day day in day out for six weeks so little things like you can um freeze the liquids um or decant them into tupperware and freeze them and they come out like depending on the how long you freeze them for like frozen yogurt or or ice cream there's a fruit juice alternative as well which freezes very well and comes out like a nice pop some of the supplements um like and um, the coffee or chocolate flavor can be heated and taken like a, um, I try to convince the patient that it tastes like a latte, but you know, um, or or a hot chocolate. We we really need to get a, a Bailey's flavour, I think, yeah. or a tonic flavour to improve compliance. But yes. that's all that's all to come. But um one of one of the things I always say to my patients is that i'm I'm a big fan of Simon Sinnott's work, and he always says, people don't buy what you're selling. they buy why you're selling it. So you know if if you have a a strong belief and a genuine belief in it yourself, and it was something that i I'm very, very grateful. i I don't have inflammatory bowel disease, and um, but I did put myself on e n um mm-hmm. quite a few years ago now i only did it for a week but i felt it was important for me to get a good grasp and understanding of what i'm asking my patients to do and i i definitely remember you know suddenly feeling like every commercial on television was suddenly (laughs) (laughs) every page that you flicked on a magazine was advertising food Mm -hmm. so it's, it's knowing those little um intricacies i suppose um but, but yeah, there are a few things. Having it with a straw um, can help the flavor, adding ice to it. Sometimes I recommend that they, um, they put it in a nice tray or pour it into a nice tray so that they can have it like kind of lollies or as the day progresses. Um, in extreme cases, Marie, it's not something that we do very often in our hospital, but in extreme cases, it can be given through through an ng tube mm. if the patient is very very keen to um to do it but just simply can't tolerate the taste of the formula i know certainly um research out of japan is showing that that's been very very positive as regard compliance and we know i suppose that the japanese are a very compliant race um but it works very very well there mm. um, that in itself is not without risks and you know it could be argued that passing an NG tube is in itself quite invasive, um, which which it is. But that can be given as an option in some cases. Um, I had a, a young man, a, sorry, I had, a, I had a young man a couple of years ago who um, opted to have it that way, and he passed his NG tube every morning and took it out <laughs> every, day. every every evening himself. And we we trained him how to to pass it and how to make. I had to test to
1: make sure it was in the right place. And so, so, yeah. I was actually going to ask you that question, Liz, because I'm, I know myself, I'm terrible at, you know, the bowel preps or colonoscopies that I just wouldn't be able to do EEN with the volume and
0: yeah. Um,
1: yeah. But obviously putting an NG tube down has other, other things to consider, but yeah, thanks for answering that. Absolutely. And how does EEN then compare with other diets that may be used in patients with Crohn's disease?
2: Um, Well, essentially, there's an awful lot of evidence to support the use of um, EEN. Um, There is now emerging evidence to support the use of PEN, which is partial entry nutrition, which I talked about or I I mentioned briefly earlier. Um, There's probably not enough evidence out there at the moment to promote PEN as um, a way of getting a patient into remission, but certainly um, there is emerging evidence that it is very effective for you know, improving patients' nutritional status pre-surgery, for example, or um, certainly helping to um, promote their nutritional state. There are a lot of other diets out there that can be used um, that don't carry an awful lot of strong scientific evidence. Um, A lot of them are based on very, very restrictive diets um, and the kind of no cheat concept and a lot of them are based on an indefinite timeline which as dietitians we would never recommend and they they to me are all kind of red flags so absolutely you know i always say to patients if you see diets on the internet or whatever that you know um ping your interest by all means come and talk to me about them and you know i will give you the pros and cons and we can discuss them um but and they they are things like um Um, Crohn's disease diet, IBD-AIDS, those kind of things. Um, Low FODMAP diet, there's an awful lot of evidence to support that in IBS, um, which I absolutely would, you know, encourage. There is good evidence for it. But again, I wouldn't be an advocate of using Mm. a low FODMAP diet in patients with active inflammatory bowel disease because it's too restrictive and you're restricting nutrients on an already compromised nutritional state. So it's not something that I would generally recommend.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but, but generally speaking, we would be looking at low fibre diets if required. If a patient is bad and you know we feel that malnutrition is an issue, I would be looking at high protein, high energy diets, um, which is kind of a dietitian's bread and butter, really. Um, so we I don't think there's any need to go into that. Gluten free diets were used a lot, there was a time when they were quite trendy. But again, there's no real evidence for the use of those in in Crohn's disease. Um, Yeah, they're the main Mm. ones, really.
1: And obviously, corticosteroids is another form of treatment. And you talked about some of the negative consequences of that. But how does it compare with EEN in terms of outcomes, I guess, for the patient?
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, again, because the majority of the, the literature or the research out there is done on paediatrics, there isn't a great deal on adults. There was a Cochrane review done in 2018, which compared steroids and EEN and essentially kind of steroids came out on, on top for a lot of the um the markers but i think predominantly that was because a lot of adults couldn't comply in the literature it's it's hard to pinpoint the um exact compliance rate there's there is no study and this is why i kind of focused my research on this there's no study out there at the moment looking at specifically at adherence but the figure that's kind of um um, around in the literature is a, pop, is a dropout rate in adults of excessive 40%. Mm. So consequently, steroids, you know, they are very quick acting, but they come at a cost. Mm. Um, they have an awful lot of side effects. Um, yeah, but patients are, I suppose, more likely to um, withdraw due to side effects, from e- are um een itself doesn't have any side effects, and um, if if they are, they're very mild and can be manipulated. So a lot of patients will describe feeling a little bit fatigued or lethargic in the first week on Een, and in my experience, that subsides in the vast, vast majority of cases. um often if patients describe nausea on een. And um, it, it's it's because they're either, you know, knocking back the tetrapack in one gulp, taking it too quickly or, you know, or they have kind of maybe slight stri- stricturing disease, which would um, affect their gastric emptying time um, or their transit time. So they just need to take it a bit slower. Um, but es- but essentially, yeah, the, the, the steroids obviously come at a much higher cost to the right. patient.
1: And you talked about, you know, some of your patients who had done both, obviously preferred the EEN because of some of those negative
2: Absolutely. side effects. Absolutely, yes, yeah. I must say I, I was um, surprised, albeit very pleased, to hear one of the questions that I asked at the end was, would you consider doing EEN again? You know, were you to go into a um, a flare? Um, and I think um, from memory 92% of mm. my patients said that they would yeah wow um, That's cool. yeah Trusting. yeah cool. and they kind of acknowledge it's it's easy to say to say it when you don't have to do it I suppose and mm. similarly when you're out the other side but the overwhelming feedback I got was that patients felt it was nowhere near as bad as they anticipated it would be mm. you know so yeah I think it's it's a case of you know arming the patient with as, mo- as much education and information that you can give them as possible. And um, I, um, I called my webinar um, "Educated, Empowered, and Nourished" to stand for EEN, and mm. um, because I feel that they are the the main components: educating the patient, empowering them, and um, supporting them to succeed or setting them up to succeed, and obviously providing them with the the nutrition that they need to improve
1: or get better. Mm. I love that. Um, yeah. And where can dietitians then learn more about EEN so that they can better educate their patients?
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, again, Marie, this is something that um, I felt, and a lot of my colleagues around the country felt was very much lacking, um, and certainly in, in my experience. Um, and this is anecdotal. It's only my experience, but I see it time and time again that um, students and new grad dietitians alike, gastro is an area that they're very fearful of. And I don't know if they're very, very well equipped When they come in as a new grad. Um, So I've done a lot of work for the CCA, which is the Crohn's Colitis Association, over the years. And back in 2017, I put an idea to them, which they very much supported. And I'm delighted to say it was launched last week. Um, So that is a platform called Gutsmart. And it is essentially an online platform for qualified dietitians to upskill them. And the first course there is a course that... um It's six modules and it's on IBD. I wrote the first five modules with the help of another dietitian, Jessica Moon, and they're on specifically on IBD. So that gives you very much, um, it's a 15-hour online course, so a lot of information, but we also look at EEN. And the last module, um, module six, is on celiac disease, and that was very kindly written by Dr. Emma Halmos in Victoria. Um, So that's new out there and it's on the CCA website. Um, And yeah, that hopefully is a a platform that would be of interest to dietitians. The other um, big one that I suppose I would like to mention and I have alluded to already is the Ospen EEA. EEN Optimal Care Pathway. So that was um, written by a group of us and launched last year. And again, it's targeted at dietitians. It's a toolkit that's available on the OSPM website. And that goes into it essentially, the aim of the work was to develop an optimal care pathway for the use of EEN in adults, which could help standardise care across the country and could be used to benchmark Practice and provide direction for any further research within the area, and it identifies kind of six key areas that should help a dietitian, you know, step them through how to um, provide support, etc., to a patient um, mm. about Bony. Congrats, and
1: yeah, congrats on the new website. I love the name of it, Gut Smart, and yeah, what a fantastic resource for dietitians and then their clients to have access to. So. Thank yeah. you. So we'll um, share both of those links in our show notes as well for um, okay. those of you who are listening. Thank you, um, thank you so much, Liz. Uh, just incredible amount of knowledge and expertise in this area over many, many years. And I love your acronym of educating, empowering and nourishing our patients with um, Crohn's disease, you know, with exclusive enteral nutrition. So the EE and yes thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your expertise in the area we greatly appreciate it that's a pleasure Marie. thank you for having me and i'd also like to thank abbott for supporting today's podcast Um, without our partners we're unable to bring you these educational opportunities so thank you to them it's greatly appreciated and we look forward to seeing you on a future dietitian connection podcast
0: get all of the links and resources we discussed through this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review for us and a rating on the Apple podcast app. Tell us what you thought about this episode, what you learned and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We really value hearing from you and we really value your feedback. So please, please hit that review button. That's it from us.
1: Thank you again for listening, wherever in the world you're tuning in from. We'll see you on a future Dietitian Connection podcast.